All right, how's it going, everybody? This is Dan Pagel here with Sentient Potential and Tech Emergence. I'm lucky enough to be uh, here today with Mr. Segi Davidovich, uh, who happens to be a serial entrepreneur, founder and CTO of multiple companies, um, and now the founder and CEO of Spark Beyond, um, where he's working on a project uh, involving liquid wear. Segi, how are you today, brother? Hey, thanks so much for inviting me, and uh, thanks so much uh, for uh, giving me the opportunity to share uh, my vision and... Uh, give you some overview about what we learned in the past few years. Yeah, big time. I know you just came back from MIT. Your wife had kind of gotten an award and done some presentations at the big emerging tech conference down there, and that was one of the first things you and I caught up on. And, and your present projects, which I thought would be a cool fit because some people have heard through our podcast and elsewhere um, you know, from experts in the domain of kind of the Internet of Things and uh, the, the increasing connectedness thereof, and I know you're working on uh, liquidware, which is sort of your vision of how software fits into all of that. I want you to kind of give us the gist in layman's terms, because I think even for me, I could use it, really clarifying what that uh, that transition to this new kind of paradigm in software looks like in your mind. Yeah. So let's uh, let's actually go back uh, in time and uh, get a brief overview about the history of computing in general. Cool. If you think about it, uh, a few decades after the first computers were built. Uh, something much more subtle, yet uh, arguably more uh, revolutionary happened. Um, it was the invention of the software. Because before the software was uh, conceived, um, hardware manufacturers had to actually build custom solutions to solve uh, custom problems, right? to solve different problems. Uh, one of the most famous examples uh, was the first programmable computer, which is the analytical engine. Uh, uh, which was designed by Charles Babbage uh, back in like 1937. Um, and uh, basically the invention of software, uh, just a few decades since its inception, uh, it has transformed the world of computing, disruptive, disrupting uh, basically entire industries and uh, creating new trillion scale ones, right? Yeah. Uh, so that made the computing tremendously cheaper. Uh, it made it accessible to the masses, uh, much more diverse and uh, ubiquitous, uh, because no one longer had to go through long and tedious uh, manufacturing cycles, um, basically in order to uh, to build computing equipment. It reduced the cost of mistakes in general, and uh, uh, and uh, programming in general is much easier to fix a mistake. The cost of a mistake is a, is much lower. Um, and uh, the even more important thing is that it allowed creating a, an abstraction layer, basically, uh, much faster. It uh, allowed the communities to to start building these hierarchies of abstractions, one on top of another. Uh, this is what we call these days libraries, right? Yes. Uh, yeah. Even the term computing or uh, software library is relatively new, right? It did not exist back in the 40s. Um, and these basically bridge these libraries and these abstraction layers. They help bridge the gap basically between the human mental model and the way that information is uh, seen by computers. Um, abstraction is a key principle to building more complex systems. It's not accidental that uh, modularity and the hierarchical pathways uh, of data flow are basically basic structure that. Uh, uh, appears in the most complex machine which we are aware of, which is the human brain, right? Uh, so the observation 
fitness that uh, new obstructions uh, uh, they they kept being added, but the the programmer, the software developer, still needs to come up with ones. Right? He needs to think about those obstructions uh, in order to be able to comprehend the complexity. So basically, our physical uh, constraints and physio physiological constraints uh, play a major role in the way that software evolves because we build software in a way that allows us to build it. Um, if you think about it, I cannot speak more than a few words per second, I cannot uh, write a few more than a few lines of code per second. Uh, that already creates certain constraints that shape the way that we build software. For example, that's a good reason for us to, to have loops in software instead of having to repeat a certain line many times, certain command or instruction, though it's not necessarily more efficient. Uh, this is something that we also perceive as more uh, compact or more uh, generalized, and the Occam's razor plays a major role in software because uh, uh, it is something that we as humans uh, perceive as beautiful or elegant whenever it's simple. Yeah, talk to uh, me about that that dynamic as well, how you see Occam's Razor is kind of playing its role there, because I think oh, that's yeah, an interesting It's actually very interesting, because when you talk to software developers, uh, they uh, they often uh, treat software as a, as a piece of art. Of course, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, and uh, they, they use terms that, that other people uh, use to describe art, like beautiful, ugly, or much... Uh, <laughs> Uh, less politically uh, politically correct uh, terms. Uh, yes, yes. And basically, if you think about it, there is a reason to it because we are designed or we have evolved to treat very certain things as as beautiful. It has uh, something to do with the balance between chaos and order, right? Because if it's too simple, then it's probably not smart enough. But if it's too complex. Then and probably the person did not comprehend the 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 gist or the the essence of a model and managed to to describe it in a simple and elegant way. Yeah, elegant so it's is the word. Always yeah. a, a fine balance between uh, between expressiveness and uh, and the generality, I would say. Yeah. Um, while software is. Uh, is soft, right? It's something that, uh, that like a clay, that we can it's shape. It's malleable it. to an extent. Yep. Yeah. Um, it still preserves the form, and this is why we call it soft. Um, the next uh, phase in software might be something totally different. Uh, it's a, it's a piece of functionality. We can no longer call it software, right? Uh, that. Uh, it does not preserve a form, but rather it adapts itself to the changing requirements and environment. This is uh, why I believe that the term liquidware is actually a, a good terminology for it, because liquid is, uh, is a good metaphor for a, for a substance that can adapt itself to, to the environment. So what does liquidware look like and uh, what does it function like? Yeah, yeah. Um, in order to understand this, we need to to look at the last decades uh, and uh, and talk a bit about open source. So open source, right, the the democratization process and commoditization process of uh, of uh, computing and the software in general, uh, basically today transcends and it's uh, it goes much beyond software, hardware and the 
uh, and uh, 3D printed objects become yeah. uh, more ubiquitous and popular and democratized. But let's uh, stay focused on software for a second. Uh, GitHub and, uh, and other open source, uh, I would say, environments and universes created a new kind of an asset. Uh, this is uh, basically uh, a place where the entire human knowledge is captured. The fact that the person uh, um, decided to code and represent the Pythagorean theorem or a matrix factorization or prime number factorization and uh, share this knowledge with the world and put it on GitHub or any other uh, open source universe is not different than a person uh, that shared their knowledge about a certain event or concept on Wikipedia. Um, and uh, we as a humanity, we need to treat the code as knowledge and as an asset and as a gold, a gold mine, basically. Uh, that's what uh, what uh, we firmly believe in, what's probably on and I personally believe in. Uh, basically, what it means is that the basic building blocks that, uh, that represent the human uh, knowledge uh, and the, the capability of humans to transform information and to compute new information from existing one uh, is uh, something that liquid work can take to the extreme by reusing all those basic uh, building blocks and uh, creating more complex software from those building blocks. So explain how uh, that might work in, in an example of a, a particular functionality that you're looking to build upon just to kind of give it some context. Oh yeah, absolutely. So if you think about it, uh, let's talk about, uh, about the semantic web and uh, also uh, talk a bit about the, the Internet of Things. Sure. Uh, so the semantic web, uh, just uh, to, to give a brief description, is uh, uh, an initiative that uh, currently many companies and organizations participate in, but uh, it is uh, widely led by, by the W3C, the World Wide Web Consortium. Uh, Tim Berners-Lee is, uh, is one of the major thought leaders in this field, and uh, and he's leading uh, many of these standardization processes. Um, it basically says that uh, we need to make the web machine readable and not only human readable. By making the web machine readable, we can uh, um, basically leverage and query the web in a way that we can. Uh, query Google to get some uh, pages that contain certain keywords, but uh, take it one step further and say, I would like to find uh, pages that, uh, that describe someone who I will be really interested to meet in the next few weeks in this location. Uh, and uh, basically all the different uh, parts of the web that are required to answer this question will be automatically connected. Uh, because they share the same standard, because they are open, and because uh, they uh, they expose a very standardized ontology to to describe the API and to to let machines use them, uh, that will also affect the way that uh, licensing of software is handled and the way that uh, that. Um, limits uh, and rate limits are imposed on, uh, on APIs. So the semantic web uh, is such a disruptive uh, change and the paradigm shift that it takes uh, the world, takes uh, humanity over a decade to, to complete this process. 
uh, while Google and many other giants uh, try to drive this transformation, it's uh, it's still a pretty complex uh, process that uh, goes both bottom up and top down. How is Liquidware uh, connected to all this? Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so basically, these different pieces of the web are also pieces of functionality, and they can be executed and invoked and combined and composed with other pieces of information and uh, um, and functionality. So basically, when uh, the community, uh, which means both individuals and the, and the corporates and other organizations, uh, share the information and share the functionality, they basically let some, uh, let's call it a computing or reasoning cloud, reason about this information and connect the dots um, instead of the developers, right? Because that's what developers do. They take different APIs and different functions that others created for them and find, find a way to, to mesh them, right? And both uh, visual mashups uh, as well as, uh, as basically compositions of functionality that yep. create more complex systems. Yep. So this is this is the main uh, the main connection to the semantic web. Cool, and and obviously that opens up a lot of additional possibilities. It also takes certain, I mean, you know, not the entirety. Obviously, it, w it might change a little bit of some of the role of what a developer is and does, um, and also uh, open up the enabling of a lot of additional markets and additional. You had mentioned functionality, um, more complex systems. Um, as an entrepreneur yourself, many times over, how do you see this as? Uh, you know, powerful in the, in the entrepreneurial landscape in terms of the new opportunities, in terms of you know where those new gaps might pop up for for folks that are moving into that world of semantic web um, or towards just again a, a more connected conception of software in and of itself. How do you see that that transforming uh, entrepreneurship? Yeah. So, so there are actually many many differences and many paradigm shifts that uh, that are going to happen in parallel. Uh, one of them is uh, the way that uh, and the role that uh, APIs play in these dynamics. Companies no longer uh, will have the necessity to negotiate terms and uh, sign contracts. This will basically done, be done automatically by this uh, reasoning cloud, as we as we may call it, uh, because uh, the protocol uh, is uh, agreed. On in advance, basically, and uh, and the standards is something that everybody is aware of. So uh, the only thing that a developer or an entrepreneur needs to do is basically plug itself or its functionality, its role, to be a part of that uh, system and part of that reasoning cloud. Marketing is uh, not going to play a role because only functionality matters. So you will be able to build in order to to win some uh, some bidding uh, contests, right? Just like happens in advertising and uh, and trading, uh, which are very good environments that we can take as an example of uh, how far uh, another environment, a new one, can be taken on in terms of uh, automation, uh, where no negotiation happens, no uh, the contracts are completely standardized, the APIs are standardized. And uh, you're just part of an ecosystem where only the the best one wins, uh, no matter how much you invest in uh, in marketing. Yeah. Okay. So this, okay. Uh, this is part of the of the realm of the semantic web and the liquidware in general. 
Huh. So now this is interesting, and I wonder how this plays into other trends. So Google, for for example, you know, is is clearly again for their search algorithms. They, uh, it's almost it always seems to me like it's getting behind you know marketing. I know Gary Vaynerchuk, for example, speaks on you know how these days you really have to be super transparent because that just is how it is. People can find out whatever. So if you say we have the lowest price on X, you know, no one's just going to take your word for it because. I'll go on Amazon and see what the price is, and if you're wrong, I'll know right away. You know, before you could just say, "Yeah, you know, we're um, you know, the lowest price provider of you know whatever it is." So there's so many examples of how how that has increasingly become the case. In addition, um, you know, advertorials get you know beat up on Google because they're you know potentially um, uh, again potentially misleading in terms of uh, claiming to be maybe a review when they're really something else. They're obviously editing their search algorithm, so if you have a lot of money, you can't just rank number one because you have a lot of money. You have to actually build things in, in the, the way that correlates with relevance and with value for whoever the user is. Now, it seems as though the transition you're talking about is of a similar ilk where it's not even necessarily going to be you know who can put up the best front or convince people the best way, but it's whose software will survive in this amalgam when it gets plugged into the reasoning cloud or plugged into the system. Um, is that part of a greater or grander trend in your own mind, or how do you see those things fitting together? That, that connection just happened in my mind there. Yeah, absolutely, because uh, the examples that you just mentioned are uh, are very precise. They, they, they describe the same phenomenon in uh, in constrained and limited uh, verticals, right? You you see this on uh, eBay, for example, that uh, uh, it's quite difficult to, to mislead people, right? And uh, and they introduce fraud, they invest a lot in it. It is possible, right, but uh, the system is getting increasingly better. Uh, we mentioned the advertising and, uh, and bidding. Uh, we mentioned the data transparency in general in terms of uh, search results. We can even see the, the transformation that Google brought into, um, uh, into the world by introducing PageRank and many other techniques that, uh, that clearly uh, create a good discrimination and differentiation between uh, those who deserve to be on the first page yep. and uh, not only add a lot of keyword stuffing. Um, so uh, as we saw it happening in data and in constrained verticals and limited verticals, the, the transformation that the semantic web will bring and the liquid wear will bring in general uh, um, in terms of functionality is very similar but much more uh, generic because uh, in order to make it generic what you need is ex is exactly standards right uh, that's exactly the reason why it was so difficult to do it before when uh, standards are still not agreed upon yeah yeah so yeah. that's absolutely true the observation about the dynamic is something that uh, I think we will uh, also see very, it's happening in an accelerated uh, fashion across different verticals even before the semantic web becomes uh, ubiquitous and uh, much more popular. Uh, but I believe that the true disruption is happening when uh, the standardization comes in place. Yeah. We can see it all the time uh, back uh, since the 60s, we saw every decade another tier of uh, standardization that created uh, uh, so much peace of mind to, to developers, but uh, also uh, the uh, time to market was reduced for many companies and uh, it allowed them collaborate, to collaborate much better. The first step was the introduction of uh, 
communication protocols uh, such as uh, TCP/IP, and then on top of it, uh, HTTP created a layer that uh, that basically allowed us to to build the web. And uh, on top of it, uh, another layer might be uh, XML and HTML that allowed us to to also represent information that. Uh, both machines and, uh, and humans can uh, can read and parse in a standard way without developers having to spend their time on it and uh, and companies having to agree upon standards and uh, RDF, which is the um, the standard for uh, not only for the format of the information but also for the meaning of information. Uh, How do you mean that? What is the R the next RDF again? Pardon my my not being a footy. A Cody fella, uh, per se, but go go a little bit into that that last one that you just yeah. referred to. Yeah, so RDF is a building blocks of uh, one of the major building blocks of the semantic web. Uh, it's an acronym for a resource description uh, uh, language. Um, basically, what it means is that uh, in addition to describing what the data should look like and how the machine should parse it. It also describes what the data means. RDF is basically a way to represent a graph of things, of entities, of concepts, uh, in a very connected way. And uh, the World Wide Web Consortium and many other uh, um, organizations that take part in this standardization create a common language that allows computers to exchange information in a way that they can also understand what it means and do something with the data and reason about it. So this, uh, this standard uh, exists for quite a few years now, but it keeps evolving and uh, getting adopted in uh, an increasing number of uh, systems. Cool, and then that's obviously, a, there's levels beyond and, and above that as well, conceivably, which could take us to different places. The, the um, additional question to get into, I know we're running uh, towards time here, but I want to make sure I got this in was uh, based on your background in entrepreneurship, we're speaking now on some decently emergent kind of concepts in uh, tech and where software uh, may go and, and where the trends may take us. Um, do you see the process of building, you're obviously, again, CEO of uh, Spark Beyond right now, do you see the process of starting building a, a company in the emerging tech domain as an innately different in some ways process than building a company on maybe a more established uh, sort of domain such as you know, again, an iPhone app or an enterprise software. Um, do you, what, what maybe for you, given your own experience, is the same, and what might also be different and make your particular experience in emerging tech different? Yeah. So obviously, emerging tech has a, a high risk, uh, uh, basically from the technological feasibility. This is why it is emerging. Uh, it has several aspects uh, to it. The first one is, will the technology work at all? Right? It's emerging, it hasn't been uh, proved and uh, widely adopted yet. Uh, the second aspect is adoption and uh, how much uh, risk would enterprises, uh, which are potential customers, uh, be willing to take. Um, we do see that uh, the rate of adoption of emerging technologies is different in different companies and in different areas of the world. We see that, uh, that uh, larger corporates, uh, uh, it's changing now, but uh, traditionally they, they are not early adopters because the cost uh, of a mistake, of an error, of a wrong decision is much higher for them. Um, 
but for startups, uh, this is basically where the, the innovation comes from and this is, uh, uh, these are also the early adopters. So this is uh, part of the B2B interaction, I would say. When you build a technology and a product and a company around that product, which is uh, B2C, the dynamics are totally different. Uh, emerging is actually a way to differentiate yourself and uh, the world does um, seek and strive to, to see new stuff and uh, uh, new functionality and new ways to, to augment ourselves, new ways to interact with the world, new ways to interact with, it, with each other. And uh, I think that uh, social networks is a great example. Um, and uh, also applications like, uh, like Uber, right, uh, that uh, raised quite a lot uh, money recently. Um, is a very simple case of a human augmenting itself by uh, creating a faster connection uh, between the human and the environment. The city is part of that environment, right? The, the, the taxi is, uh, is part of the, the world that the human lives in and uh, every interaction that the person does with the city has a potential to, to innovate and to uh, to create some shortcuts that uh, that makes the life easier. Uber is just one example of this, but uh, if you recently follow the, the activity of Michael uh, Bloomberg, uh, you would see that uh, he is a firm believer in uh, in open data and uh, and open cities and open governments. Uh, he basically released a lot of New York's data and uh, let entrepreneurs. Uh, innovate on top of it and uh, there were quite a few very interesting innovations that helped uh, improve the quality of life uh, of uh, New Yorkers. And I think that uh, openness of data creates a lot of opportunities uh, in both B2B and B2C and uh, I think that it is definitely a good idea to see how uh, New data says that uh, that now become open, create new opportunities to connect the dots and uh, and create something something new and something that uh, makes us one step more efficient and uh, closer towards the the singularity of our efficiency, probably right in the way that we communicate with the, yeah, yeah. with each other and uh, and uh, in many cases even reducing the, the need to communicate to communicate. Think about Foursquare, for example. And the fact that uh, that now I can broadcast to the entire world that uh, I'm at this location probably saves me um, several uh, operations of uh, sharing with each individual of my friends and contacts where I am, whether I want to do this or not. But uh, there are many more opportunities to, to transform certain activities to broadcast, right? Twitter did it in one domain, Facebook and Foursquare approached it and uh, attacked it uh, in several different domains, but these are not the only domains. I think that uh, entrepreneurs still need to find uh, other areas that, uh, that they can exploit the same kind of, uh, um, of interaction that, uh, that we as individuals have with our cities, with our uh, friends and uh, contacts and with the world and see how we can augment ourselves. Yeah, it's interesting to think about it from that perspective of efficiency, to, to look at efficiency be found in interactions with 
you know, our technologies, our environments, our, you know, given objectives, whether it's taxis, uh, you know, sewer systems, whatever else, there's, there's ways to find uh, the shorter cut, as you had mentioned before, you know, just improving our efficiency to grander and grander scale. So hopefully that's some food for thought for the entrepreneurs tuning in and watching this episode. Uh, I, I know we had gone a little bit uh, over here, Mr. Davidovich, but I was glad that we did. I, I wanted to make sure I covered all the questions. Um, and I want to make sure people can also stay connected to you in terms of your own projects, um, you know, the developments in liquidware, et cetera. Where can people uh, find more about you, your company, et cetera? Where are the, where are the spots to kind of pay attention to? Yeah, so uh, everybody is invited to follow me on Twitter. Uh, it's just uh, M-E-S-A-G-I-E uh, on Twitter. And uh, the company is still in stealth mode, but uh, in about two months, uh, we will be glad to update you and uh, let you enjoy the first uh, stages of uh, the liquid run. Very good, very good. Excited about that as well. Guys, make sure you uh, follow Segi himself on Twitter. I know I've seen your channel there myself. Um, and obviously, once there's new developments there, I'll make sure I post that stuff up on the blog too. Thank you so much for spending the time with us today and, uh, and delving into some details. I look forward to catching up soon, brother. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Cool. Hey, thanks for tuning in, guys. If you're an entrepreneur or a future thinker, uh, with an interest in businesses, transitions, or technologies that have the potential to alter human potential, then make sure you check out techemergence.com. It's our main blog site where you can see all of our other interviews with uh, top startup leaders, uh, entrepreneurship experts, and folks in the domain of technology, cutting-edge emerging technology. Uh, if you have a particular interest in how technology can affect the future of human consciousness and our conscious experience, and be sure to also check out sentientpotential.com. There we explore a lot of the ethical considerations and really serious moral matters of emerging technologies, in addition to interviews with great philosophers and technology experts of our day. Uh, more than anything else, always feel free to reach out if you can find us via email. Um, you can reach out to us there or whatever other way. Find us on the blog. Be sure to drop comments. We believe that the serious uh, conversation about the future is not only open-minded, but also interdisciplinary and multifaceted. So we'd like nothing more than to be able to glean your ideas as well. Uh, so with that being said, with the best of intentions for a brilliant future, this is Dan Fagella signing off. And we'll see you next week.